0: So Money, episode 1546, Donovan X. Ramsey, author of When Crack Was King.
1: You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. We didn't learn the lessons of the crack era. That, you know, the crack epidemic is something that happened in our country and it really impacted cities and communities of color in particular. And, you know, once it was over, we we just moved on. And it's because we didn't learn the lessons and improve our system that we're still vulnerable to drug epidemics like the opioid epidemic and why not only are we vulnerable, but we don't have solutions in place to actually help people, you know, once they're caught up in in whatever their drug of choice is. So for me, you know, I really hope that by telling these stories that that we can learn from them. So it was important to not just get the The sort of meta history the rise and fall of crack but to also tell the stories of the individuals impacted so that way we could look to the ways that they dug themselves out of the epidemic and um, came out on the other end as survivors
0: welcome to so money everybody i'm farnoosh tarabi today we're going to explore what my guest calls a misunderstood era the 1980s and 1990s, when the crack epidemic became a harrowing experience for thousands of Americans. If we care about what's behind existing wealth gaps and opportunity gaps today, history is sometimes our greatest teacher. But chances are, when we think of the crack era, our minds go to how it was depicted in the media or political campaigns and policing. Do we really know the people who suffered and what happened to them? And while some suffered, others profited. How did the failures of that epidemic haunt and hold back our plight against drugs as well as social justice and wealth equality then and still today? Donovan X. Ramsey is our guest and the author of the new book, When Crack Was King a people's history of a misunderstood era. The book came out in July, has fast become acclaimed, featured everywhere, including a review, a long review in the New York Times. It's kind of an author's dream. And the writer says, Donovan aims to give the story of the crack epidemic a human face while telling it from start to finish a Herculean task. By and large, he succeeds. Fun fact, everybody, Donovan and I go way back. I have goosebumps as I open this episode. I had goosebumps the entire time recording it with him. He was my intern. That makes me sound really, really old. But the fact of the matter is he and I kind of grew up in the trenches of journalism. I'm a bit further ahead, but he is by and large a far better writer than I ever will be. His work is making a very important impact. I'm just blown away that I had the opportunity in my lifetime to be able to collaborate with him. And it it is with great honor that I bring him on the show. He's been on the show before. This won't be his last. And although we've both come quite far in our careers, we begin this episode with the two of us fumbling a bit with our audio, (laughs) but we got it working a little behind the scenes for you as we kick things off. Here we go. Here's Donovan X. Ramsey. Are you good? Or you just let me know when you're ready.
1: The source is my Yeti. Okay.
0: All right.
1: Look at me acting like a pro.
0: You are a pro. Donovan <laughs> Ramsey, welcome to So Money. Not only are you good at setting up your own audio for a podcast, but you are a masterful writer. And I like to say, I knew you when. I knew you when. <laughs> I knew you when you were a bright eyed starry-eyed young man, and you're still a young man, but you had just graduated from Columbia Journalism School where I went. And I think it was just an alignment of stars. You were able to work with me as I was also trying to build this ship. And together, we kind of grew up in this world of journalism and writing and trying to make a business out of all the things. And you always had the highest of intentions and ambitions with your writing and your impact. And I'm so so blown away by your first of many books that I'm sure you're going to write. But this now is called When Crack Was King. I'm getting goosebumps because I remember the day you told me about this book and the deal, and it was before the pandemic. And I thought, oh, the world needs this book. And then of course, 2020 happened. And I feel like maybe sometimes it's important to let a book sort of Take its process. Like, so glad that you didn't rush to write this book in 2018, that you are now coming out with it now when it is even more relevant maybe sadly, but more relevant. But When Crack Was King, I want to hand you the mic, a people's history of a misunderstood era, as you have experienced it, as you've interviewed four prominent characters in this book, a kaleidoscope of storytelling about this prominent time in our country's history that was so misunderstood and has implications to this day of how we police, how we think about equity. And so take it away. What prompted you to want to write this, this particular piece of our history and correct the record?
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Farnoosh. This is, you know, we get to talk every now and then on on the mic, but I just always like spending time with you. Um, You know, I had the privilege for folks that may not know to uh, assist you. For a period when I was out of J school and to also, you know, see you work on your books. And that was a part of what really um, encouraged me to like pursue book writing as a part of my career. So I got to be on record saying thank you for mm-hmm. allowing me to, to to witness that.
0: Well, thank you, Donovan. You were instrumental. And I like I say, like it was an, an alignment of stars. I mean, it was not a accident. I think that we met and that we... collaborated. And I don't, I think you've more than just an assistant, you were a collaborator and, um, I, I so enjoyed mentoring you and watching you. And, uh, and so anyway, what a joy. I mean, this book, I said to myself, I hope he's proud of himself.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I know. I'm. I'm, I'm super proud because it's the book that I set out to write. So, you know, I, um, entered, Journalism, wanting to write about Black life and also about, you know, the parts of Black life that can be not so um, enjoyable or like glamorous. And that includes like the criminal legal system and the ways that Black folks get swept up in it. And, um, you know, in my experience writing many of those stories, people would talk about the crack era, but they never talked about it in the same ways or using the same terms. And I realized that there was. Um that like people's memories were inconsistent around what happened. So you know, I set out to find a book that would explain it to me just as a reporter, and I realized that that book doesn't exist. So you know, something that I learned from you on the business side is that that means that there's probably a market for it, right? That right. you know, if people um, have those questions and they're talking about it for sure, but the book doesn't exist then, and that's the book that you have to write. Mm-hmm. so that's what and, I did. More,
0: and, and you did it and, and more than that too, it's that you know it starts with curiosity. you' you come to this realization that a lot of people have the same questions, but that th- it's the answers that will that will make the impact. It's the answers to these questions that might spark change. And yeah. so why is when crack was King so important to read today? In terms of informing us to hopefully create that impact and change that's so necessary in our plight for social justice and mm-hmm. equity, which you've been on the show many times, we've talked about these things. Tell us about what you hope will come out of this book.
1: Yeah, well, you know, we didn't learn the lessons of the crack era. That you know, the crack epidemic is something that happened in our country, and it really impacted cities and communities of color in particular. And, you know, once it was over, we, we just moved on. And it's because we didn't learn the lessons and improve our system that we're still vulnerable to drug epidemics like the opioid epidemic and why not only are we vulnerable, but we don't have solutions in place to actually help people, you know, once they're caught up in, in whatever their drug of choice is. So for me, you know, I really hope that by telling these stories that, That we could learn from them. So it was Mm -hmm. important to not just get the the sort of meta history, the rise and fall of crack, but to also tell the stories of the individuals impacted. So that way we could look to the ways that they dug themselves out of the epidemic and um, came out on the other end as survivors.
0: And you do this through four main characters in your book. You yourself also a main character. Of course, the writer is always a main character. But in the introduction, you talk about when you were a child and sort of when you were first introduced to this, um, to this epidemic, how it was articulated, how it was talked about was, was very impactful. Tell us about your choice to tell this through the lens of these four individuals. And I, I just think it was so smart. I mean, first of all... Hollywood. I know we're doing a strike right now, but (laughs) I anticipate a bidding war for the rights to this book because it has clear adaptation potential and cinematic. And I mean, you've already developed the characters and they are real (laughs) people. So there's no like, you know, imagination there, but tell us why these four particular people were crucial to this 360 that you wanted to provide on looking at the crack epidemic.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things that journalism does not do well is sort of fleshing out um, the stories of vulnerable people Mm -hmm. that, you know, too often we kind of fill those gaps with stereotypes. And then these people that are complex just become, you know, these like flat caricatures. So I realized that um, that the only way to really do the history justice was to add memory to it, Mm -hmm. that there was the history that was there from official documents and news reports. And what that was always missing was this human element of how people were impacted. And that's something that you can only really do by harnessing people's memories as uh, sometimes inconsistent and faulty as they can be, Um, you know, that you have to start kind of throwing them in the pot to arrive at a larger truth. So, you know, that was why I didn't go with just one character, but four characters that offered different perspectives from different cities. So Mm -hmm. that way readers would have not just that, again, that larger rise and fall, but these narratives that they could compare and contrast.
0: Mm. What were some of the patterns? I mean, clearly differences across four different people, different cities, different life experiences, but were there patterns that you picked up on that then shaped and inform maybe like, this is the narrative. This is the mm-hmm. narrative about the crack epidemic that we, we don't hear enough about.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the The first thing that I found in my research was that um, first I had to identify which cities were the hardest hit because you know I was doing, like, like the plan at first was just to focus on one city. I was going to do Washington DC and I was interviewing people in DC and I realized, oh, their story is very different from those of people in New York
0: mm-hmm. or people
1: in Los Angeles. So then I looked at the hardest hit cities and I saw, you know, to the one that they had been these great migration cities that black folks sort of left the South for in search of like industrial jobs and, you know, sort of like a working class life. And that those cities in the seventies, you saw deindustrialization. And what had been working class neighborhoods where people owned houses and, you know, had families became ghettos because of the concentrated poverty. Mm -hmm. And that um, and also that, you know, during the 60s and 70s, they were riot cities, like almost to the one. They had been the sites of major riots, usually about policing or housing conditions. Um, So what that did was it helped me connect the crack epidemic to these larger forces Mm -hmm. And then to also be able to identify um, disaffection, you know, that it's a term that we use today when we talk about people in the Midwest and the Rust Belt and the South that are using opioids, that people can become so hopeless that they want to just check out. But it's not a term that we really apply to folks during the crack epidemic. Right, right, right. I was able to identify that this community of people, um, that they were disaffected. And that—that's why they wanted to check out with a substance that made them feel good. Cocaine. Yeah.
0: The role of race in the portrayal of the crack ep- epidemic, and I should say racism in this in the crack epidemic. The way that it was communicated and branded, and the fear that was, you know, sort of surrounded this. Um, When we were talking a long back before the the before times about the genesis of this book and sort of what you were the the things you were picking up on very early stages was just that law enforcement was leveraging this epidemic to use it as almost like a weapon against black Americans when in reality, most drug users in this country are white Americans. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that is so true. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Because I think that's so important. I mean, um, when you brought up meth, I thought the meth epidemic, uh, again, largely a white American crisis... And there's so much more empathy around this, I think, in our culture mm-hmm. about like trying to find solutions and mental health and getting to the root of it. And why why do people do this? And it's it's not that they're just druggies. It's that they right. just like they're led to this because – and you brought I – you mean, you touched on this. That was not what we, was the narrative, of course, during the crack epidemic. And, and so what else did you discover about the role of racism in the portrayal of the crack epidemic?
1: Yeah, that um- – You know, it's it's so sad that that we failed to learn the lessons of the crack epidemic because it was something that we associated with black and Latino people in big cities that um, that because those were the folks that became the face of crack. um, The nation kind of just decided, oh, well, that happened to those people because they're bad people. So we can move on without ever investigating it. And what that means is that we just didn't. That, that we weren't curious about it, right? I mean, even the fact that, that I am writing this authoritative history, you know, all these years later and that no one else did it is because we weren't curious enough about why it happened, that people had just decided, oh, you know, that happened to them for the obvious reasons. And, um, you know, the way that it also plays out on a, Policy level is that we get policies that are race neutral on their face, that they're just about crime, that they're just about drugs, but that those policies are applied unequally. So, you know, um, or sometimes you get racist laws, you know, so you'll get something like, I mean, I would argue a racist law, the 100 to 1 disparity in sentencing between crack and powder cocaine, Mm -hmm. where basically you would get 100 times, you know, or it, it took 100 times the amount of powder cocaine to get the same sentence as crack cocaine. So let's say 500 grams of powder cocaine versus, uh, I'm sorry, 100 grams of powder cocaine versus one gram of crack cocaine. And the sentence was five years for, yeah. for, for, wow. for each. Well, the impact of that is that you're going to police people unequally. You're going to arrest black folks, especially for, um, uh, possession of, of crack. And then those folks not only go to prison, but they stay in prison. And that's how, and that's how we get a situation like mass incarceration. So, you know, uh, race is this confusing, distracting factor in American yeah. life. That is something that makes otherwise, you know, curious and intelligent people put aside their ability to think and to just, you know, uh, to embrace fear and to embrace shame and, um, you know, fear and shame are just where every bad thing happens. They're just <laughs> like
0: first cousins. Yeah. I think what, one of the references in your introduction is about Whitney Houston and she was, she was abusing crack cocaine. She denied mm-hmm. it because part of it was that there was a stigma about like whoever uses this is poor. It's a poor person's drug. And she, of course, didn't want that branding. Um, and, and what, what are some of the other like myths around this drug use, this particular drug use that you found to be pervasive? And again, maybe even intentional branding because, or it was just, it was, it was false associations that we had, um, it's just yeah. so sad, the whole thing. But like, what else did you discover on, uh, in that realm?
1: Well, you know, uh, you know, on, on the topic of Whitney Houston, who I absolutely love, you know, that, that she did an interview with Oprah, you know, when she was in a period of recovery where she talked about how she smoked uh, base, she called it, with, with marijuana. So, you know, base was one of the original names for crack cocaine, but it was very clear in that interview that I don't even think she knew that she was smoking crack. So, you know, it's funny how, you know, somebody could become vulnerable to crack addiction through that kind of stigma being associated with crack. So somebody says, oh, this isn't crack, this is base. So now you feel free to use it and you ultimately become addicted. Wow. Um, But I'll say in terms of the the things that we misunderstand about the the myths, first, there was this idea that crack was a, a super drug. Which uh, it was not. The crack is the same substance as powder cocaine. Um, it just simply is consumed differently, and because it was consumed differently, it is metabolized in the body differently. So um, anything that you smoke goes directly to your brain, and that means that you get immediately high. But that high is short lived. So therefore, it's something that people binge. Um, and I would compare for you know any of our listeners that have used marijuana. Uh, it's like when you have an edible and you think, oh, that edible didn't do a thing. And then an hour later, you're high out of your mind for the next 24 <laughs> hours, you know, right. versus smoking a joint. We it's, are not speaking from experienced
0: listeners. No. That's what we've read
1: in the newspapers. No, I, I, I barely drink <laughs> coffee, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that is, you know, similar. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was a myth. And out of that myth came this idea, right, that like crack addicts were then these like zombies, that they right. were people that became immediately addicted and that were a different level of an addicts.
0: Yeah. And thus gave police force the authority and permission and support to be yeah. aggressive and violent against a very specific group of people to to be to, for their forcefulness to be justified. And yes. yet- it. it You know, obviously that was, I mean, we've done so many pieces on race on this show and and every time if you, if there's ever a piece of you that wonders, oh, maybe it was just all coincidence or it was just (laughs) an accidental thing or they didn't intend it. This was by design. Yes. This was by design. This was intentional. This was an opportunity they couldn't afford to neglect. They right. thought, oh, we, we've got something here. And this is a pattern in history. So the crack epidemic is, is an example of that. But, you know, I, I saw, is it 13th, the 13th?
1: Yeah, um, exactly.
0: And the history of police violence and the continued racism, like we may have, quote unquote, freed the slaves. And yet, of course, like, no. What other moments in our history do you see this being in parallel to in terms of here's cultural phenomenon? This is a drug epidemic in this case that was used against a a group of people, in this case, Black Americans. African Americans, but there are other examples of this, you know, of these playing out in other cultures, other races throughout the world in our country. But and you, in your research, did you find parallels which would then corroborate even your thesis? Yeah. Like this is not a new. This is not a new thing. This is what people do. This is what people in authority positions do to sort yeah. of, you know, keep their authority.
1: Well, you know, um, drugs are so interesting in American history because we've had really drug scares and drug hysteria almost as long as we've been a country. Right. So, you know, there was panic the around. program.
0: Yeah. Oh, my goodness.
1: But, you know, yeah. well before that, right? So you think about something like Reefer Madness and the association of uh, Mexican-Americans with marijuana and the policies, you know, throughout the Southwest that came out of this idea that, you know, uh, Mexican men hopped up on weed were, were dangerous. You know, we are a country that prohibited alcohol for a period, <laughs> you know, which we often forget about that, like that, like our country was so on fire about alcohol intoxication that we completely prohibited it. And still, you know, uh, there are lots of places in the Midwest and in the South where you can't buy alcohol on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. But that's the country that we live in, you know, yeah. um, with 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 cocaine. Specifically, there was a cocaine um craze and hysteria around it in the early 1900s, where, um, uh, you know, organizations like the New York Times published articles about Negro cocaine fiends, and this idea that Black men in particular um, uh, were um, became impervious to bullets when intoxicated with cocaine. Yeah, Like, you know, doctors uh-huh. wrote that in the New York Times and Um, So in in drugs, I want to say are so interesting because they are a fact of life that we are, you know, these um, these biological machines that operate on substances. Mm -hmm. So whether your substance of choice is sugar or Mm -hmm. caffeine or salt or fat. Right. That it's like how we how we energize and just move our bodies. Mm -hmm. So drugs are Fact of life, substances, I should say, are a fact of life. So there are things that you can, and by you, I mean politicians, can pick and choose what to criminalize Mm -hmm. as a political tool, uh, as a way of targeting people. When Richard Nixon started the war on drugs in in earnest in the 70s, it was because he wanted to target the anti-war left and the Black Panther Party. And mm-hmm. hippies and Black Panthers were associated with drugs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from the war on drugs very beginning, it was a political tool. And there's, and there's one last thing that I want to say on the topic, which is, you know, the way that we have, as a nation, executed the war on drugs has almost always been about drug possession and hardly ever about drug trafficking into the United States. I that doesn't even
0: is- get here, <laughs> right? Oh, that was my other question to you way back earlier in the, in the interview. But I was like, someone, some group—I'm not going to name names—but they were incentivized <laughs> to keep this epidemic going. A lot of problems yes. in our country are homegrown, and there is movements to keep the problems persisting because people are profiting. Yeah. And I don't know enough to know who the, who the who's who are, but you've done the research, and you might have some theories. But tell us about that
1: yeah yeah you know it's um it was i go all the way back in the book to like the history of cocaine so you know that the cocaine as a substance starts you know from coca leaves in the andes um, in south and central america and people chewing on coca leaves as a way of having energy to climb mountains and to do work um which sounds familiar right as we drink our coffee that people consume a substance to become more more productive but that substance has high potential for addiction and abuse right. um, so once it became more popular around the world um, you know that there was a entire industry in south and central america that grew out of it so powder cocaine has been you know a popular substance for you know over a century now and in the 80s there were groups in Central America that the U.S. government wanted to support in terms of their in terms of their political activities. But we did not have um, approval from Congress to do so, to to disrupt foreign governments. So, you know, it's well documented. I'm not you know breaking news by saying this, but the U.S. government turned a blind eye mm-hmm. while those groups, the, namely the Contras in Nicaragua, trafficked tons of cocaine into the United States. And it is from that blood of cocaine in the 70s and 80s that the crack epidemic was born. Wow.
0: My gosh. And we're not conspiracy theorists, y'all. This is, as Donovan <laughs> said, well, well documented. The truth is hard. It's really, really hard to face. Yeah. And and thank you for doing the hard work of bringing the truth to the forefront. What are some of the reactions you're getting from your book? I mean, outside of let's just say the New York Times and NPR and LA Weekly, this book is being celebrated across all the literati, but from everyday folks, I'm sure you're getting a lot of thank yous because yeah. this was a very traumatic chapter in our history. A lot of lives lost, a lot of lives still affected and i'm sure to have this now on the record is it feels it feels good it's like someone's finally paying attention and listening and saying i see you i know Mm -hmm. what really happened and i'm gonna tell everybody
1: yeah the the thank yous are especially nice you know Mm -hmm. people who um you know from all walks of life who send me private you know dms or emails saying hey this happened to me too or, you know, I also grew up in this way or, you know, I'm in recovery and thank you for seeing me and adding my story to the history. Um, that feels incredible because, you know, part of what I wanted to do for the book was reduce or eliminate the stigma around this conversation as much as I could. Um, you know, we kind of talked about it earlier, but I grew up very poor in Columbus, Ohio, raised by a single mother. With two sisters in a neighborhood that was hard hit by crack, and my mom, thank thank God for her, you know, protected us really really well and sheltered us from things happening literally down the street. Um, but I grew up kind of ashamed of the fact that that's the the soil that I was planted in, um, and because you know a part of the way that we talked about neighborhoods like mine. Was that they were irredeemable and illegitimate in many ways. So it made it difficult to go into, um, you know, the world of journalism, which is very elite, and to say I too have something to say when I come from a neighborhood and a community that people don't see any value in, that people would rather you know turn completely away from. So um, I know how hard it was for me to tell my own story, you know, of, um, you know, having my very first bike stolen by a drug addict, <laughs> you know, in the way that that shapes you, you know, as a child. Right. And, um, uh, but I felt like it was so necessary to tell that story so other people could then tell their stories. Yeah.
0: Right. It's saying, you know, even though you weren't directly impacted by this, you were on the periphery of it, you were indirectly impacted by it. And, and the, the impact being that you grew up maybe feeling less than, feeling like your voice wasn't as meaningful, as important. And then so where does that leave the others who were at the center of this epidemic? And it just really demonstrates the like the scale of this problem and that history continue to play out in modern times
1: yeah absolutely and you know and and i think that you know we all were impacted in ways that we might not even completely understand like just the fear of crime that exists i think within our society like we are we we live in a very fearful society that we live with that fear and that fear was really stoked during the 80s and the 90s that if you know you were a kid that that sat through the the very special episodes of your favorite sitcom, you know, which were, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. which were uh, really. What were the shows? Like, um, different. Say by the Bell. Had Saved one. by the Bell.
1: The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air had a, a, a drug joke. episode. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Wow. That there, were all, that there was always an episode about drugs or about guns and violence.
0: Cool. And that was one of my other questions for you is that, you know, we've talked about the involvement of, of law enforcement and even, media and the medical industry and sort of fueling that fear. But thank you for also bringing up, you know, Fridays, lineup of, you know, television (laughs) that we all watched and the after school specials. And everyone had a hand in this to some extent, whether they were very intentional about it or just playing that same tune, because that's what was popular and that was what everybody was buying into this. So let's just keep it going. There was profit to be made when these stories were sensationalized. Fear sells. I mean, I write about it in a healthy state of panic. It's like, we are so familiar with fear, not just because it is a natural resource in our bodies, but because the world uh, plays on that. The 24 seven news cycle marketing. It's like this, always the sense of urgency and, you know, crime and, you know, everything is high stakes and life-threatening and doesn't help, you know? Uh, yeah. But, whew, yeah. I you. mean, think about this, that
1: like the people that 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 gave us most of our drug messaging in the 80s and 90s was the, um, I think it's the, the, the National Institute for a Drug-Free America. And this was literally a group of marketers that were funded by the Reagan administration, to create all of those incredibly memorable ads, like "This is your brain on drugs," "This is your
0: brain on drugs," frightening, <laughs> <very well. laughs>
1: frightening, right? But like you know, these weren't scientists; these weren't you know journalists; these weren't people that were accountable in those kind of ways to to give um, accurate messaging. They were trying to evoke a feeling, which is what marketing does, and that's who we put the messaging around drug abuse, drug dealing. Um, all of that, we like put it in their hands, um, in a really funny way too. I also came across all this great documentation about the Reagans who were entertainers before they were politicians, both Nancy and Ronald Reagan.
0: They know drama.
1: (laughs) They know drama in that they literally held meetings with the heads of networks saying, how can we work drug anti-drug messaging into the show? So this is why Nancy Reagan is on. An episode of Different Strokes. Mm -hmm. This is why Jesse Spano says, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so scared. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, because it was literally coordinated messaging about Mm -hmm. drugs, which, you know, on one hand, I think it did terrify a generation of young people and probably had some impact on
0: I mean, it's why um, I didn't. I didn't want to be Jesse Spano. I, didn't <laughs> I mean, kids were in my high school were taking all sorts of things to help them stay up at night to do their homework. You know, yeah. um, caffeine pills, and I was like, no, that is not how I'm leaving the earth. Like, I'm <laughs> yes. not. and maybe there would be a small percentage chance of that happening, mm-hmm. but I was like, that is in my control to choose to take this or not. I saw Same. what happened on Saved by the Bell. Not doing it.
1: Same. Yeah, no, terrified of drugs. And I think that again it's it probably in that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely.
0: But tell us the other side of it.
1: You know, but you know, it's like you you get that effect, but at what cost? Which is to create misinformation about drugs that then adds to additional harm, shame, and stigma. Mm-hmm. So for someone like me, you know, growing up in a neighborhood that was hard hit. I didn't want to become an addict. I didn't want to be a dealer. I was afraid of the addicts, the addicts and the dealers around me. But also I had to deal with a level of policing oh, in my yeah. neighborhood yeah. as a as a response, right? Yeah. So it was I was, you know, from every turn, you know, harassed by the police, afraid of the violence in my community and you know and there was just no letting up. And all of that as a byproduct right of that fear and hysteria.
0: This is Your Brain on Drugs. Any questions? Yeah. <laughs> if you have questions, turn to Donovan Ramsey. He's got answers, the real answers. The book is called When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy, an incredible book. He says the book is insightful, deeply moving. Donovan Ramsey, thank you so much. And what's next?
1: Um, podcasting, Farnoosh.
0: You're going to start a podcast?
1: Want to start a podcast? I, you know, it's very early on, but I, I realized during writing this book that I really love interviewing. That I almost write so I can interview, mm. and um, so in thinking about how I could, you know, move my work forward, um, I felt like I wanted to incorporate more interviewing. I really feel like there's such a need for experimentation with like. The black voice and black vocal expression. And there's such an audience again to, to build for black listeners in the podcasting space.
0: Oh yeah. So that's what I yeah, want to do. please do that. And I will help you. And the word I was searching for that was on the pages of your book, deeply feeling. Mm. Authoritative, nice authoritative, <laughs> yeah. Authoritative and deeply feeling. This is from the One World team, your publishers, who I think published... President Obama's book?
1: You know what? Not Obama. That is Crown. Okay. And I will have you know that Crown did it make wanted, me an offer for of Farnoosh. You wanted yes.
0: your book, right. That's where I got confused.
1: <laughs> and I said, no, I want to go with One World because they published Brian Stevenson. They published Ta-Nehisi Coates. They published Nicole Hannah-Jones. And I really knew that they would handle the book well. So I um, went against my better Farnoosh advice and I left a little bit of money on the table. <laughs> but I hope that we'll pick it up on the back no, end.
0: No, I mean, you do that sometimes because you want the right fit. Yes, this is a long journey. Book writing is not a quick race. It is yeah. a long, steady marathon. And you have won this marathon. Donovan Ramsey, thank you so much. we will put the link in our show notes. I just, I am so in awe of you. Congratulations. What else can I say? I mean, <laughs> maybe someday, thank you. Maybe there's like a world where we can hug actually virtually. Yes. Like I, I can transcend the screen and give you a hug. <laughs> but know that that is what I really want to do. And in absence of that, I'm just going to say, um, I heart you.
1: Thank you so much, Varnish. And wait a minute, have you turned to the acknowledgements of the book yet? Yes. Of course,
0: I know. Look, everybody. Well, you pointed that out for me. I I know. I I, my my tendency is to first go to Nick. Now, I just didn't. Honestly, it didn't even cross my mind that you would thank me.
1: Are you kidding me?
0: But I mean, it makes sense. No, (laughs) because I mean, I appreciate it. Of course, I mean, I if to to think that I had any hand in this masterpiece being completed. Um, well, I'm going to put that in my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Acknowledged in When Crack Was King, starting in 2023 till present.
1: Yeah. yeah, right, right. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> job title, that's going to be the Chiron when I go on, like, in America. Like. <laughs> yeah. and, coming and joining us now, host of So Money, and credited in the acknowledgements of When Crack Was King, Varni Stravi.
1: I can't wait. I can't yep. wait.
0: <laughs> for Don. Okay. Donovan, be well, my friend.
1: All right. You too. We'll talk soon. Thanks
0: so much to Donovan for joining us. I have the link to his book in our show notes, and I'll be giving away a copy of this book. If you want it, let me know. Leave a review in our Apple Podcasts review section, and I might pick you next Friday on Ask Farnoosh. Hope you have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll see you back here soon. I hope your day is so money.